I had a little bit of a dilemma in that as I was reading, starting at verse 35, I thought, well, if I read, if I go till verse 42, there doesn't really seem to be much there to preach on, and uh, I don't want to send anybody home hungry. And then I read the rest of the chapter about the the uh, second wave of Jesus calling his disciples, and I thought, if I do both of those together, it's going to be really busy, and there'll be so much, so many that uh, it'll be a bunch of jangling thoughts, and nothing will really stick with people. Well, I I decided to stick with just those first seven verses, or those first few verses, in uh, starting at verse thirty-five, and um, I think. The more I meditated upon those, the more I became convinced that there is plenty for us to chew on here. Um, And let's do a little experiment. Usually I preach for 50 to 60 minutes, somewhere in there. Um, Let's see if we can maybe shorten that by 30 minutes today. We'll see. If if you really... uh, if you really have a hard time dealing with longer messages, just pray really hard and maybe you'll get through in 30 minutes. Uh, but it's a, it's a shorter text, so we'll see how it goes. John chapter 1, let's, uh, let's just read through this passage, starting at verse 35. And as we read, if you were paying attention in the call to worship as we read from Luke, uh, see if you can spot any discrepancies or apparent discrepancies with this passage in John. There are a couple of really key ones. John 1, starting at 35. I better move over to John from Luke. That would be a good idea. Okay, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He thought he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. All right, short little passage. Seems like it's just a statement of a few facts, but there's lots in here for us to, to learn. Now, if you were listening and paid attention as we were reading, look, Uh, Luke, did anyone find any discrepancies between those two accounts? I know I'm putting you on the spot. Peter's calling. Peter's calling? Okay. We have Peter in one case here being summoned by his brother Andrew. In the other case, uh, Jesus finds him in the boat. And he kind of calls, um, who is it that's called along with Peter? Anyway, it's a very different situation. What about the location? 
Presumably, in the Gospel of John, we are still at the Jordan River, or somewhere in that area, because it's the very next day after John has first seen Jesus coming, and he's baptized him, and declared this is the Son of God, and, or the, the Father has declared this is the Son of God. But in the Gospel of John, we're somewhere by the lake in Galilee. Hmm, strange. And there's another thing that's really significant. In John's account, we have the, the apostle, or the John the Baptist. Um, he is actually there when the two disciples who are with him, uh, when Andrew decides to follow Jesus. John is standing there. In Luke's account, and I don't know if, maybe it wasn't in Luke's, but, or in one of the other Gospels, but uh, Jesus... Uh, or John had actually already been imprisoned. So what's happening in Luke, and also recorded in parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark, is obviously at a different time. So the question then is, are we talking about the same event? Or are we talking about perhaps two phases of the same event? Now, if you read the account of, in Luke, you find that there is a, this very brief period of introduction, and Peter is suddenly smitten by, or there's a, a miracle that Jesus did, does in order to uh, fill the nets with fish. Peter is smitten by, in conscience when Jesus calls him and says, Go away, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And, but Jesus reassures them and says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And then they immediately, they leave their livelihood and follow Jesus. In John, there's nothing like that. In fact, it's just John's preaching one day, he's preaching the next day, they meet Jesus, they follow him. These are separate events. They have to be. And I think if we put these two Gospels together, we have a clear picture of how we come to know Jesus. We love to hear conversion stories where people are suddenly lifted out of sin and corruption and all kinds of, uh, all kinds of skullduggery and whatever they're into, and they're lifted out of that, and it seems like they hear the gospel, and suddenly they know Jesus, suddenly they're transformed, and there's just a night and day transformation. And I'm aware that conversions like that do happen. But there are means that the Lord uses in order to draw people to himself. And there is a typical pattern with which the Lord works. I know that most of you were not saved the first time you heard the gospel. In fact, many of you were not saved the first time you heard the name of Jesus or you heard the stories about Jesus. Some of you grew up in church and you know and you would testify that there was no saving faith there. And yet, at the same time, there was a period of introduction where you got to know Jesus. And then there came a time when Jesus got to know you. When Jesus turned his eyes upon you.
to save you. So this uh, message today is called Getting to Know Jesus. Let's look at first, uh, first at this whole aspect of turning to Jesus. And we find this in verse, verses 35 through 37. The next day John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus, and as he walked by, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Those words that I have bolded there in your outline, he looked at Jesus. That specific word for look is only used twice in the Gospel of John. And it's only used in verse 35 and then down in verse 42. First we have John, the Baptist. He looks at Jesus. And this is an intense, deliberate look. Literally it would be, and John turned his eyes upon Jesus. You know the song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So John looks at Jesus. And as he looks at Jesus, he knows, he's seen Jesus, he's met Jesus yesterday, literally the day, the previous day in our text. And God has verified to him that it is indeed the Son of God. But now he looks at Jesus, he looks intently at him, and he exclaims, he exclaims, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold is almost an exclamation of surprise. It's an exclamation of wonder. And so here on this second day, John is equally struck with wonder when he sees Jesus. And he is focusing his entire attention. He is turning his eyes to Jesus. John's two disciples are standing with him. There's probably more, but two of them took special note when Jesus said, or when John said, Behold the Lamb of God. And I believe they took special note of their master, their teacher, John's face, as he beheld Jesus. As John, as they had been listening to John proclaim uh, forget, or repentance, For the remission of sins. As he has proclaimed. Prepare in the desert a highway for our God. And as as they have heard him. The day before. Proclaiming behold the Lamb of God. Who takes away the the sin of the world. As they look. And they see this interaction. And Jesus just happens to be. Passing by at this point. But they see. Their master's. Absolute confidence and devotion. And his intense focus on his Lord. God turns people to Jesus through the preaching of the word. They've been under the preaching of the word. John has been very Christ-centered in his message. He has not drawn attention to himself. He hasn't even paid attention to his personal appearance. It's all about Jesus. The only way that people's hearts turn to Jesus. And the way that, or I shouldn't say the only way, but the way that God has ordained to turn people from darkness to light, from death to life, the power of God unto salvation is the gospel. And John has been proclaiming the gospel. 
Especially, he proclaimed the gospel the day before this event when he said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. This is what turns the heart. When we understand that our sins are remitted in Jesus' name through the shedding of his blood, that he is indeed God's Lamb that pays for all of our sin and atones and propitiates and turns away the wrath of God. When we are... When we come into count, when we come in, and when we encounter this message, and a person, in a person especially who truly believes that message, and who is truly in love with Jesus, that for many of us has been where we first turned to Him. Charles uh, uh, Charles uh, Spurgeon. He was converted in a tiny little ramshackle Methodist church on a stormy night and he'd gone into this building for shelter and the the guy had given a a very rough message probably not even all that theologically accurate but God used it to turn him. Well, very likely Charles Spurgeon wasn't out on the you know, out behind a pulpit the next day preaching the way that we know that he could preach. There was a time of nurture. There had to be a time of development, a time of learning, before he became the effective witness that we knew him, know, him, know that he has been. There were thousands, thousands upon thousands, saved through Charles Spurgeon's messages. And he didn't even have altar calls at his messages. He would show up at his office at 6 in the morning on Monday, and people who, would, who had been convicted by the Lord during the message, who had had their eyes turned to Jesus, they would come to him to learn more about Jesus. And perhaps to trust in Jesus and to just, just to get the facts straight. Well, all of our walks with Christ begin when we first turn to him. Now there can be a saving turning to Jesus, and there can be just... A general taking notice or investigation. There's a there's an old song, you know it. I have decided to follow Jesus. What what's the rest of the song? No turning back. There's nothing really wrong with that song. Because when we come to Jesus, we hear the gospel. It impresses us in power. And in our, in our will, we respond to that. What we're not aware of, if that conversion is genuine, is that God has literally given us a new heart and a desire and an ability to believe. Until that point, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. If it relies only upon our decision. And if our entire conversion is based on this transaction, I have decided to follow Jesus, and I'm not turning back, guess what? We're going to turn back. So we need to acknowledge that our will is involved here, but our will is not what saves us. It is not our decision that saves us. It is our will that responds after our heart has been changed by the Spirit of God. So, when these two disciples follow Jesus, 
the word there is not follow in, in the sense of disciple. They just, they just followed him. Literally, they, they walked after him. So let's not take this as the official call. But we can see that in the preaching of John the Baptist, there at least is a general call. And these men have responded, at least in some capacity, to this call. And they go with Jesus. Well, after they have turned to Jesus, and I believe this is quite typical of the Christian experience, there is a great need for them to spend time with Jesus. So in verse 38, Jesus says, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? Now, Jesus knows exactly what they're seeking. Um, I'm surprised he didn't ask who you're seeking, because... He knew that they were after him. But if you look back at the question, or basically at the message that has turned them, has got their attention, it is, Behold the Lamb of God. Now by this time, these guys have heard it before. They know that John has left the last line out. You remember when Arnie Armstrong came to, uh, to uh, teach us, and I think he was teaching through the Old Testament, over at Silver Heights, um, he would he would give half of a sentence and then he would wait for us to fill in the other half of the sentence. So as John says this, perhaps there's even a device like that. Behold the Lamb of God. And he's hoping that his disciples will fill in the blank, which takes away the sin of the do you think that was an attractive message to these guys? To have their sin taken away? But Jesus says, what are you seeking? And they say to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. Now John is writing to a mixed audience. And he wants everybody in the whole world to be able to understand this. And he's writing in Greek. So he's making sure that when he uses a term... Um, a Hebrew term that everybody who reads it understands. Now I think there's something significant here that he, uh, he makes a point of identifying Jesus as a teacher. Rabbi, which means teacher. They've been turned to Christ, but now they need to be taught. They need to be taught by Christ. And their response is another question. They say, where are you staying? Strange. What are you seeking? And they say, Teacher, where are you staying? Why do you think they said, where are you staying? Do you think they wanted to stand there by the Jordan and have a quick little conversation? Well, all the other people were gathering around and, and vying for John's attention or Jesus' attention. Where are you staying? Where, is, where, where can we go where we can sit with you, we can maybe eat with you, we can learn from you. I believe this dynamic, spending time with Jesus, it's very similar to when a person hears the gospel, and they perhaps they hear about Jesus, maybe they hear something on the radio or on the television, but there is something, there's a switch kind of it's turned on in them. And they say, I have to know more about this Jesus. I've, I've heard this testimony. Now I need to know 
Jesus. I need to learn about him. And so they go to his house. It says they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. It's interesting that that tenth hour is put in there. Um, there's some debate over which hour it actually is, whether it's Roman reckoning or Jewish reckoning of time. But that really isn't the point of the time being given there. The point is that, and a little bit of conjecture here, if you'll permit, uh, one of the disciples is not identified. Andrew's identified as one who was with John and heard Jesus. The other one is not identified. And most scholars believe that that is actually John. The one who is John the Apostle, the one who's writing down this gospel account. So, when you meet Jesus, perhaps when you go to his dwelling and spend half a day with him, and you have your life laid bare as you sit in awe at the feet of the one you have now become convinced is a Messiah, you don't forget that. You remember details. You remember what time you left for his house. You remember, you remember those transitional times. Some of you have memories like that, maybe of your own conversion or of some other significant event. So these two men, probably one of them being John, the author of this book, they go and they spend time with Jesus. Um, it might have been from... It was a significant part of the day that they stayed with him. When people who have been exposed to the gospel in one way or another, when they come and they sit in fellowship in Christ's church, where Christ is acknowledged as head, and when his word is clearly proclaimed, and when the gospel is clearly um, proclaimed as he taught his, his apostles, they are literally... And I say literally, literally, in the presence of Christ. The church is his body. Um, I mean, we're not his identical body, but we are the way that Christ manifests and represents himself in this world. And when unbelievers come, or uh, we'll call them seekers, but we know really that it is the Lord who is drawing them. When they come into our midst... They have opportunity to spend that time with Jesus, to get to know who He is. That's why inviting people to church is a good idea. They get to spend time with the body of Christ, not necessarily as a member of the body, but they get to observe the one who is the Savior of the world through His people. And they see in us the glory of the King. Well, sometime, either this first turning or this time with Jesus, there's a revelation that happens in the minds of these disciples. And they've heard John proclaiming that he who comes after me is, is before me. I'm not worthy to un unleash, un unlace his sandal. They've heard John declare him to be the Son of God. But now 
they're about to proclaim this in their own words. So we have next, after the turning to Jesus, after time with Jesus, there is testifying about Jesus, or a testimony about Jesus. One of the two who heard John in verse 40 speak, and who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He had first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Now, you can get just a little sense of John's interaction, perhaps, with the other Gospels in this, this little set, these two verses here. Um, John writes as if people already know who Simon Peter is. Simon Peter's brother. You know Simon. Um, John's Gospel was written after the other three. And there's possibility that the other three were already in circulation. And the, the, the main players in the story were already well known. Andrew would have been lesser known, so Andrew identifies him with Peter, who was um, probably already risen to prominence among the disciples. So, Andrew, he makes this confession, and he, he runs to his brother, Peter, and he says, um, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. Probably Andrew's understanding of what the Messiah was, was quite limited at this point. But he would have known for sure that this was the anointed king of Israel, of the line of David, which was to be the savior of, uh, the savior of Israel, to, be, to reign as king. They, he probably didn't fully understand, um, actually he probably didn't understand at all about his sacrifice, his death and his resurrection. But he knew that this was the Messiah. And right away, it seems right away, as soon as he knows, he, in fact, it was right away because if you look in verse 43, we have the next day. So this happened on the same day. He went and he told his brother Simon, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. Messiah means anointed one or um, anointed Savior. This was just the general understanding of the coming king that the Jews had amongst themselves. Well, this, this is what happens when our hearts are turned to Jesus. And then when we spend time with him and we begin to know him. There is an urgency, there is a need to testify. And people who have known Jesus for the least amount of time, sometimes they're the most ready to testify. They're the least embarrassed. They're, they're just so in awe of the person they've met and of what this person has done. You think of the woman at the well. Her testimony from John chapter 4 was it wasn't uh, so much Jesus washed away all my sins it's Jesus told me all my sins Jesus told me everything I ever did could this be the Christ could this be the Messiah well here is Andrew going with this limited understanding of the good news and running to his brother Simon and says we have found the Messiah 
Simon incidentally means hearing. And I, I, I know that Simon heard the message because he came with um, Andrew to Jesus. So in verse 42, we have the fourth point here, where he says, he brought him to Jesus. There is a tenacity about being a Christian. There's a tenacity. You know what tenacity is? It's like a, a bulldog or a pit bull who grabs on and doesn't let go. It's like a, 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 a marathon racer who has nothing left, no energy reserve, no fluid left in his body, but the finish line is a mile away, and he digs deep, and he presses on, and he finishes that. At least, at the very least, there is, a, there is an example here. Not only does Andrew go and he tells his brother, we found Messiah. We found the king. We found our deliverer. But he makes sure that Simon gets to Jesus. I think we got a little bit of an example of this in the, the, in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is uh, teaching and he's in this house and everybody's pressed in and there's a paralytic man who can't get anywhere near and his friends pick him up and they bring him up on top of the roof and they dig a hole in the roof and they plop him right down in front of Jesus. I, I know that that's not really what that story is about. It's about Jesus forgiving his sins. But there is something that happens in the believer's hearts where we have this urgency, this compulsion. We need to bring people to Jesus. And I think it's very appropriate what Andrew did to bring him to Jesus rather than to try to explain all his theories about who Jesus was. To bring him to Jesus. In, in our context, it might be if you're a brand new Christian, and you don't know everything about the gospel, bring him to someone who can carefully explain who Jesus is, who can carefully explain the gospel. I mean, start it off by all means. Use the knowledge the Lord has given you. But there is, uh, there is more to this. Our goal in evangelism is not to become sort of the surrogate Jesus to people. It is to get them to the point where they have actually come into the presence of the risen Christ, of the living God-man, and have come to understand what he has done to pay for their sins. We can't, we can't assume that our winning personality and the kindness that we show is going to bring anyone to Jesus. There's a second effort there. There's a tenacity involved. I really like this last point. So Simon is now in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus says, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, or Cephas. It's actually... Uh, K sound in Greek. Uh, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And literally, 
Um, some translations would say which means rock. Now, if indeed people already had access to the other Gospels, and if they had read about some of Peter's bumbling and his, uh, you know, his profession of Christ as the, thou art the Christ, the Son of God, and two minutes later Jesus is saying to him, get thee behind me, Satan, you have not in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And when you have him denying Christ, when, when, he's, uh, when his own life is threatened, and fulfilling Jesus' own prophecy that he would deny him before the cock crowed, that he would deny him three times. Any word but rock would seem to fit. Jellyfish, maybe? Wimp? I mean, Peter was bold in his talk. And I'm, I'm not dissing Peter here. I think most of us would have done the same thing. But Peter was bold in his talk and sometimes he was given insight from God himself from the Holy Spirit and yet he betrayed his um, just his fickleness and his immaturity at times but you have to remember who is looking at him now there is two aspects there are two aspects to us truly knowing Jesus you have John, the Baptist, looking intently at Jesus. You have John turning his eyes to Jesus in verse 35. That's part of our conversion. But do you know why we turn our eyes to Jesus? It's because Jesus turns his eyes upon us. Jesus looks at him. He turns his eyes upon him. He observes him carefully. I would say that he looks right into him and right through him. This is Jesus after all. And he looks not only at him in his present state, but he looks at him in his completed state. And he knows what he intends to accomplish in Peter. And he knows that rock will be a fitting image. He knows that Peter will one day proclaim, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he will say to him, upon this rock, upon this confession, I will build my church. Now all of this, if you put it side by side with that account in Luke, it really makes a lot more sense. This is the initial calling, the initial introduction, the initial planting of the seed, as it were. It is the sort of investigative period um, for the disciples. They're there, they're learning. And then, sometime later, after the, these men already know Jesus, especially the two men that have gone to his house, they've sat with him. And now Peter has come, and he has sat with him. And Jesus has given him a new name. Sometime after that, Jesus visits them again. And he visits them in their workplace. And he performs this miracle to 
further vindicate that he is who they have come to know that he is? And in the middle of that exchange, after Jesus has done the miracle, you have Peter's strange confession. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I think Peter knew about that because he had spent time in the presence of Jesus. He knew all about the depths and the necessity for repentance because he had been a disciple of John, or his brother had been the disciple of John the Baptist. And Peter seems very reluctant, assuming that he has already had this name given to him, he seems very reluctant to accept that he is going to be called, that Simon is going to be transformed into Peter, into the rock. He seems very reluctant to accept that. Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Then you have another aspect of the disciples immediately leaving their occupation to follow Jesus. That actually makes a little bit more sense when you know that they have already had quite an intimate introduction to Jesus. And that then he is, after this he comes and he is more formally gathering his disciples and specifically calling them to the work of ministry. So, some people will get really upset when they see discrepancies between passages of Scripture. But I think when we put these two together, we see a more enhanced understanding of the process that God used, at least in this case, in preparing His disciples, in preparing their hearts, in turning them first through the the message, and then later on through greater and greater um, interaction with Jesus. To, the, to their Savior. So, if you look in order here at these points, I think they represent a nice little uh, sort of general timeline for a Christian's life. There's a turning to Jesus. There is that moment when you see the Lamb of God. When you're in some way at least attracted by that message. And that might be an intellectual turning where you're willing to consider the fact of it, or it might be an actual turning. It might be God's granted repentance. It might be Him turning your heart so that you can turn to Him. Then there's time with Jesus. There is a need for new believers and believers of every age to spend time with Jesus, to seek Him in His Word and the Scriptures, to have the Word declared and taught through the teaching of the Apostles. And the church is the primary vehicle when that specific teaching takes place. I shouldn't say that. It takes place in your homes as well. But um, all of this is it's part of that discipleship process. And there's got to be There's got to be a testifying element to our lives. We can't be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Jesus made it pretty clear. If you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. So that there is a necessity to to declare. We are responsible for what we know. Andrew knew very little. 
But he had to go out and he had to communicate that. So you don't have to be a, a scholar to start an evangelism, to, to, to begin an evangelism. However, this, this time with Jesus and more time with Jesus and more time with Jesus, this is absolutely essential. And then finally, that transformation. I, don't, I think we all have a new name, we just don't know what it is. Because we didn't have Jesus directly tell it to us. But if I had to make up a name for myself, it wouldn't be a very good name. And I think Jesus has an understanding. I don't, I don't mean he's literally got this... I just, I just know that he knows who I am, but he also knows who I will be. It doesn't appear yet what we shall be. But when we see him, we are going to be transformed to be like him. And uh, that's a transformation. It's an ongoing thing. It starts instantly, but it is a transformation. And, you know, what really sealed it for Peter, and what really confirmed the whole rock um, moniker, was when the Holy Spirit came upon him and indwelled him. And when he proclaimed, proclaimed boldly the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And it was that indwelling Holy Spirit and the evidence of that indwelling Holy Spirit that was, uh, that was the seal, that was the earnest, that was the guarantee that that name Rock was going to be accomplished because it was done by God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just for the, the lessons that we can learn from this passage, it's a, it's a narrative passage. It's not intended as a direct teaching passage. But surely there are lessons that we can take to heart. And Lord, may our confidence in your word increase. May our skill in using it increase. Lord, perhaps we feel we have little little to share, that we have maybe limited doctrinal knowledge, but Lord, I pray that you would help us to live up to the knowledge that we have and to be willing to share it, but Lord, in preparation for that, that we would be spending time with you, that we would be seeking you, that we would be seeking to hear your voice through the scriptures, through the preaching of the word, so that we can go out and we can witness, we can tenaciously bring people to Jesus and see them transformed. I pray this in his name. Amen. We're dismissed for...